we're back to Romans 8 after a Sunday away. And we'll take this passage before us that Taylor read in, in two considerations as we frequently do. Uh, one, two, approach. I'll talk first about the groaning of creation now. And then second, the glory of creation then. So we have a, a now-then kind of factor working. The groaning of creation now and the glory of creation then. Now before getting into those as a one-two, I'll come back to these and let you know when we're there. But I want to start by noting the time. There in verse 18, this passage gives us the present time. You see the words there in verse 18, and we're going to call this the meantime of the world. Our suffering in the world has already been established. This is verse 17. We looked at this two weeks ago. And it's repeated in verse 18. Verse 18, you get this reference to the sufferings of this present time. And that includes a lot. That's comprehensive. But creation also is suffering. The whole biosphere that we inhabit as living creatures. Creation is waiting with eager longing, this passage says, as your eye falls down the text here. Creation is groaning in the pains of childbirth, this passage says. And we need to answer why creation is being personified here. But note how Paul's way of putting things is all anticipation. It's an acknowledgement of what it's like here and now, but there's an anticipation of something coming. And that something that's coming is an, is an end to suffering as we know it, suffering that a, a coming glory is going to to uh, chase out, as it were, and all the prophets before Paul said this glory of God would actually fill the earth. And location is important here. We tend to think of our future in this ethereal way. It's wispy. There's a lot of fog lights. It's like a concert from the 80s, you know. And, and it's, uh, it, it, but it's concrete. It's physical. It's a, it's, it's a reality that you can, that you can engage now, this glory that the passage says is coming, it will be far greater for all the sufferings that it outshines. In other words, there's something about the sufferings that we go through now that when we're there at that time, that glory is made all the brighter, all the greater, uh, all the, the more enjoyable to experience and, and experiencing joy in an unfiltered way for all of the, the pains that we know here. Every kind of pain for now, every kind of break, every kind of rupture, relationally, vocationally, politically, even natural ruptures in the created order, this is due to creation being subject to futility. You see the words there in verse 20? You might take the word futility if you were isolating words and doing a word study and, and write it in all caps because futility means frustration, verse 20. The reality that things don't always work out, things don't always work well, we know this all too well, that everything is susceptible to brokenness. But this is a temporary arrangement, and yet, here's the tension, temporary lasts a long time. It includes all the time that's been up till now. The present time is a mean time. Literally, in many respects. Not just now, today. We look around and we go, oh, things have never been worse than they are now. And in a sense, it's because we're, 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 we're living it. We're in it. 
We don't have the, we have the perspective of history from our history, but we weren't there. And so all we have is the moment. And we say, oh, now things are, are so mean. It's a mean time, literally. But, but it's always been a mean time from the perspective of, of the Lord's decrees and how he works them out. And until always becomes eternity, it's a mean time. Literally, the biosphere that all living things inhabit, our world we call creation, this is a place that's not for now a part of the, uh, apart from the glory of God. God is presently revealing his glory in the person of Jesus through redemption. But eventually the knowledge of the glory of God will fill the earth like water covering the sea, according to the prophet Habakkuk. Isaiah, another prophet, says something very similar. And this is through the renewal of all things. The prophets anticipated creation itself full of God's glory, meaning God's glory is not this ethereal thing floating out there in space. It locates, which necessitates a renewed creation. This is what our passage is anticipating. And that is to come so good that Paul personifies creation itself. The earth yearning for this, waiting with eagerness for what? For the righteous rule that the return of Jesus Christ to the world he made ushers in. It's a lot to take in. For now, though, in the present, the present time, in every season, autumn, winter, spring, summer, as it goes on, in every season, the intense brokenness of creation is evident. And our frustrations with this linger on. But again, our passage looks ahead. Our passage lifts our chin. Not in optimism, but a hoptimism, we may call it. I've shared this difference with you before. That while optimism says, don't worry, it may not happen. That's what the optimist says, and that's fine. But the hoptimist says something different. Says, you know, it, it may happen. But God will be with us still. Optimism says things will get better. Hope says things may not get better, but we will get better by God's grace and better able to deal with present troubles. Optimism says cheer up. Hope says look up. Your redemption is drawing nigh. The words in verse 18 are the words of a hoptimist. I consider that the sufferings, this is verse 18, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Look, to be revealed. Notice the tense. It isn't yet except by promise. In the text of Scripture, in passages like this one, but the promise of renewed creation, the renewal that creation eagerly waits for, the promise was announced way back at the expulsion from the Garden of Eden. You go back and look at Genesis and you see it. God previews and announces there in Genesis 3 that this promise of, of renewal is going to begin with the, the redemption, the first coming of, of Jesus. This is what the first fruits referenced down in verse 23 is about. I know this is a complex passage. I'm going to try to keep it uh, simple as we look at it. But this first fruits reference in verse 23, the first fruits is the first part of the harvest. Verse 23, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we too as redeemed people 
are also waiting with creation for its renewal. We've been redeemed and therefore we know what's coming for creation. Verse 23, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly. Creation groans and we groan as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, meaning the full-on experience of adoption. We are adopted now. That was already established in this passage back in verse 15. We looked at that a couple weeks ago. But we are not yet home. Adopted, but not yet home. This is what verse 23 is saying. We are not home until our bodies are made new. Now this is something that, that typically, by and large, evangelicals underthink and underanticipate. We're very caught up in the moment. We're, we're living our, our lives and we're going through all of our, our routines and I get 30, 35 minutes with you and, and all these other voices get hours with you during the week. And a lot of us don't read the scriptures and a lot of us aren't really uh, in fellowship with other Christians in any kind of meaningful way. And so we come to this spot and I start to sort of, you know, pour all this out and you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. What are you talking about? And that's reflective of, of that this is a subject that when you come to, you know, it's, a, it's like eating a ri really rich piece of cake and you get about halfway through it and you go, oh man, I don't know that I should be eating these. You know? I mean, I love it. It's good. I want more of it, but I think I'm going to revisit this later. You know? What we're talking about here is a lot to take in. We are adopted fully now, but we're not yet home. So we're living in this in-between, this meantime. When I say we're not home until our bodies are made new, that's what the scriptures talk about is glorification. Now you can follow this. It's, it's, it is a big word. It's a big concept, but it's the completeness of our salvation. The meantime is running out like sands from an hourglass. You turn over a little hourglass, the sands all run down to the bottom. If you think of the first coming of Christ as like an hourglass got turned over. And those sands run out for as long as it takes for the second coming of Christ to happen, which is the next great event. As C.S. Lewis memorably put it, when the author walks onto the stage, the play is over. And so when the author comes back, the author of all things, the author of our faith as well, the play is over for creation as we presently know it, but not for creation itself. And here's where we have underthought this, because the Bible previews Jesus reigning over a renewed creation. Jesus said, Revelation 21, it's toward the very end of the Bible, Behold, I make all things new. And he's saying this about created order, created things. Eternity, I'm, now I'm going to say something philosophical, eternity is not timeless, it is the perfection of time. It is the glorification of time and bodies. I know this is a lot to take in. The future always is, especially a glorious future like ours. But until we experience, and we're going to experience in Christ what this passage says, until we do experience what God the Spirit uses this passage to fill us with anticipation and longing for, in this meantime that we inhabit, because people are made in the image and likeness of God, people have an inkling that things have to be better, don't they? People look around and they say, you know, it's got to be better than this. 
People intuit this, but the Lord's people who belong to him through Christ and are owning his ownership of us, we know not just from intuition and a hope so that things will get better, we have a no-so. We have the conviction that things will be better because we know there will come a time when King Jesus will reign over it all. I can't give you a full color portrait of this. I wish I could. And typically, the doctrine of, of the last things, the end times, the future, tends to go off the rails the more colors people use to try to put all that in. I could go back to the 70s and some wild stuff is going on there about, about eschatology and prophecy. But I, I, get, I can give you a pencil sketch and may even have a few colored pencils in, the <laughs> in, in my uh, kit there. But we know the present time is for God to work out all of his purposes in view of what he's decreed. He's bringing more and more people into his kingdom. That's a good thing. And our inclusion in his kingdom by his grace, as we've already established up to here in Romans, our inclusion guarantees us something better. A new heaven, a new earth on which the sons of God, verse 19, the sons of God, the adopted people of God, live and reign with him in a glorified state. Look at verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, verse 20, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, verse 21, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That's, that's what we're looking forward to. So creation gets in on this in some way. How so? When, we wonder. And this is, wasn't just wondered by us. Uh, Ken took us to Psalm 77 this morning, or Caleb took us to Psalm 77 this morning. Did you catch the questions in Psalm 77? They're Romans 8 kinds of questions. When will this happen? When will it get better? When will the pains of childbirth, verse 22, talks about the, the, the analogy of, of, of the groaning together and the pains of childbirth. When does this pass and the new creation is delivered, implying joy? How long until Jesus makes all things new? And until he does, is it just going to be so much Psalm 77 territory, all those questions in our responsive reading this morning. Is it just going to be so much groaning, this word in our text? That's the concern of our passage here, Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 25. The concern of this passage is to place the renewing promise of God in front of us again in this place, this meantime that we inhabit for now. And that it is a meantime, literally, is because the world is under judgment. The existence of suffering, and we'll talk more about suffering as we go on in Romans 8 in the next couple of weeks, but the existence of suffering in the world is actually a form of justice, the justice of God, in that all the groaning is what our rebellion has brought about. But now, notice verse 20 again. Verse 20 again. Creation was subject to, subjected to futility, not willing, but because of him who subjected it. Now, it seems from that that we should conclude God is responsible for the groaning. So how do we make sense of this? Which is it? Let's get into our two considerations in pursuit 
of this. The two I mentioned at the very beginning of the message. First, the groaning of creation now. And second, the glory of creation then. Now and then. The groaning of creation now and the glory of creation then. First, the groaning of creation now. Look back for a moment at chapter 3 in Romans. I just want to refresh something that's foundational to this, this groaning of creation now. Why? Chapter 3, verse 9. We have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, meaning everyone, are under sin. Chapter 3, verse 9, all are under sin. And then you get to verse 23 in chapter 3, Romans 3, 23. A lot of you know it by heart. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I'll keep reading in chapter 3 here, verse 24. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Propitiation is a fancy word that means the, the wrath of God, his hatred of what hurts his creation has been satisfied to be received, chapter 3, verse 25, by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time. Here's the $64,000 statement in chapter 3, verse 26, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Go back to chapter 8. Once human beings turned from God, at the outset of our creation, no sooner are people in the picture than we turn from God. And once that happened, there were only two alternatives for God. Uh, one was he could destroy creation and us with it, and that would be entirely just if he had done that. Just said, that's it, that didn't work out very well, boom, it's gone. God is completely self-satisfied within his own person, Father, Son, and Spirit. He didn't need us. He didn't create us for fellowship with us, all that stuff that we say. God created us in order to reveal his glory, to share his happiness, and his happiness is what eventually builds up and accrues to his glory. So one option God had when human beings turned away from him is he could just destroy creation in us, and that would be just. Or he could, and this is chapter 8, verse 20, subject creation to futility. And that would also be just. He could condemn only or he could condemn and also redeem. Condemnation has to happen because God is just. But mercy also has to happen because God is merciful. That creation is fallen, that word that we use to describe why things are wrong in the world. Why even weather is, is wrong. We use that word fallen and it encapsulates what's wrong. It means that life includes great loss, great pain, great grief, great suffering, but there is life as opposed to there being no life because God would have said, that's it, nothing's going to exist from here on except what is uh, within my, my own perfections. God entered life himself, human life himself, to bear our grief and know our sorrows, the prophet Isaiah says, to suffer as one of us in order to redeem us. What kind of God does that? Answer, a creator God who cares about his creation, 
In Romans 3, we learn that God took the second alternative, to be just and justifier. To not just show us his justice, but to also show us his mercy. You could even say to show us his mercy through his justice. The two mesh. The groaning of creation now is because God did not immediately destroy creation due to it being the locale of our rebellion. But nor will he allow the rebellion to go on indefinitely. God will fill the earth with the glory of his redemptive work so that everyone will know, redeemed and unredeemed, that God is not only just but also one, the one who justifies. Verse 20, again, creation was subjected to futility, not willingly. In other words, God didn't want a rebellion. He didn't make us rebel. The forbidden tree was not in the Garden of Eden to tempt us, but to tell us that even in our freedom, even in our innocence, we had to trust God. It wasn't an option to not trust him. Verse 20 but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That creation experiences a renewal just as creatures made in the image and likeness of God can experience redemption. God had the option in his justice to abandon the world he made and us in it, to not let us exist or to let us exist but withhold any redemptive mercy for this just to be some sort of you know, dystopian Mad Max kind of world. Yes, I saw the movie. Well, you're not supposed to see me. I saw the movie. But he didn't do that because he wanted to redeem. And his desire to redeem is what? It's the desire to share his glory. His perfect contentment within himself to share that. He wanted those he redeemed to be developed by hope. How do you develop hope? Seems to necessitate, verses 24 and 25, his being unseen. Our being in the world without seeing him. The, the apostles talk about this, though you have not seen him. You love him. The apostle Peter writes that. Jesus said to his apostles uh, close to his crucifixion night, listen, uh, you, you've seen me. Blessed are, are those who see me and believe, or, but also blessed, more blessed are those who haven't seen me and believe. God made the world to share it with us. He renews the world, why? To share his glory with us. I mentioned verses 24 and 25. First part of verse 24. For in this hope we were saved. He wanted us to be in on salvation and not just salvation like, whew, I'm glad, I, I'm, I'm, glad I'm safe. I'm glad I'm protected from the justice of God. It's a salvation that develops the resiliency of hope. Do you see that in the passage? Salvation that develops the resiliency of hope. Perhaps you've heard uh, about the fine-tuning of the universe in order to support life on this planet, that if the earth was just ever so slightly tilted on its axis one way or another, it'd be too cold, it'd be too hot. Life can, can be supported here because of, of, of essentially the perfect placement of, of our uh, globe uh, within the, the galaxy that we're in here. Uh, and that's a, a marvelous thing to con consider. Well, in a similar vein, 
This passage is saying the brokenness of the world is fine-tuning for hope. That God wants to develop not just a, a redeemed community, but a redeemed community that has the resiliency of hope, which is the anticipation of glory, a future glory that we get to be in on, that, that it will locate here in fullness, creation renewed, and that will be greater than all the suffering that it outshines. That's the point in verse 18 there. I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. He's not being dismissive of suffering. He's saying life is hard. It is difficult. There are many things that you're not going to like and want. But the thing you really are going to like and want, it's coming. And you keep going with God. That's what hope gives us and brings to us. Our redemption is the first fruits of the greater harvest that will be God renewing creation. But when the creature goes his or her own way, in, in spite of the creator's goodness, we put our hope in ourselves and other lesser saviors, things don't work out well. And what Paul says in this passage is even creation knows this. Now, you don't have to go out and start asking dirt and bushes, you know, what do you know? They're living, but not living that way. But creation knows something. Again, notice in the text, as your eye falls down, verses 18 to 25 here, notice that creation is personified. Personified, not vilified, by the way. There's a difference between earthliness and worldliness. And one of the reasons I think evangelicals have underthought this is that we confuse the two. We confuse earthliness and worldliness. And how many times I've, I've heard people talk about themselves or, or, or things uh, in kind of this Gnostic sort of way, like, well, this, you know, this is, that's evil, that thing, and, and, and this, it, it's, it's, not, it's not like that. Matter is good. God made it. And matter gets renewed. It gets to get in on the freedom of the glory of the children of God. I, I really love this passage. I hope you can tell that I love this passage. Because I can't think of anything better to be in on than this. I mean, every time you anticipate something in your life, every time you look forward to something, man, I can't wait till we get to go do that. It, it is like what's, that's like a little taste of something that is just, you just put whatever number to the power you want to put. Every anticipation you have, every longing, every time you, you say, this was so much fun, this was so good. If you can think uh, out from there to man, what will it be like when anticipation is consummated, when, when there's nothing to look forward to anymore because I'm there. And you go, well, I, I've always got to have something to look forward to. Well, in some way, when you're in perfection, it'll make perfect sense to you that you don't have to have that anymore. I mean, it's really something to think about. But by creation, the way he personifies it here, he means... This biosphere God made that all living things inhabit. This world as life happens on it. Everything here for now is subject to what? Decay, rot, pain, but also to redemption. Created people are subject to redemption as the outworking purposes of God. And renewal, creation itself, subject to renewal. But for now, here and now, soil will lose its nutrients. Resources will deplete or get polluted. Climate changes, I realize that's disputed, but nevertheless, the thermodynamic law of entropy is in effect. 
The world is heaving under the weight of our dominion. The breakdowns are scientifically verifiable, but the reason why is theological, the rebellion of old. This is why theology used to be the queen of the sciences. It gave us our why. Our dominion over God's creation is sinful, and thereby God's judgment is in effect. And so Paul pictures creation itself, what we have dominion over, our world. God made it. It's longing for renewal because of our sin, wanting to be freed from the effects of our sin, run amok, which only God can do anything about, and he did at the cross. And he'll punctuate what he did at the Lord's return when all will see that he is the ruler of all, his rightful place. Creation is longing for this, the return of the creator, the Lord Jesus himself, to put it all right. Now this takes us to our second consideration, and it doesn't take as long to develop because, frankly, uh, there's a lot about this we don't know. And once you're living it, you'll go, I don't remember that sermon that you preached back in 2018, but that'd be totally fine. The glory of creation then which is due to the promise of God. If the groaning of creation now is in some way due to the justice of God, the glory of creation then is due to the promise of God. We pick this up in verse 21. The creation itself will be free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Verse 23, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption of sons, the full-on experience of that, the redemption of our bodies. Again, we're fully adopted now, we're just not home. The glory of creation is the redemption of our bodies. Glory, biblically, conveys both an idea and an experience. Whenever you see glory, you've got an idea and you've got an experience. The idea is weight, substance, heaviness. The uh, experience is transformation. And so ultimate glory for us is being in God's unfiltered presence. Can you imagine? His glory finally and fully transforming us will be the experience of being finally free, fully free of sin's corruption. Not only just our personal sin, but other sins against us, all of it. In Christ, our future bodily selves will be unlike anything that we experience sensory, dimensionally, with regard to time, everything, and yet it will still be us. It will still be you, fully you. It's a lot to take in, I know. It's hard to illustrate, but I'll try with this. Uh, Back in February, SpaceX launched the Falcon Heavy rocket. I thought of this thing about the glory, the the idea of heaviness, and I thought of the rocket, Falcon Heavy. You know, it's the one that's got the Tesla up there that's, uh, that's heading to Mars, I think. One of the unique things about it was what are we used to seeing when shuttles go up and rockets go up, the booster rockets on the side. And we're used to seeing those fall off and and they cascade down and they fall into the ocean and they get recovered. But with Falcon Heavy, the two side booster rockets did something that we haven't seen. They came back to Earth and they landed. It was really cool to watch if you got to see it. Because not only did they come back to earth and land, they landed with remarkable precision. They landed on exactly the pads that were created for them and they landed at precisely the same moment. And when you watch this online, you got all this cheering of the launch team uh, going on as you watch it because it was glorious for the launch team. 
According to this passage, there's a fullness to God's care of all that he's made that includes not just the people he redeemed from the world, but creation itself. It's not just the transportation of human souls to the heavenly ether realm someday, glory for us in Christ, whatever that means, and the rest of creation falls off like spent booster rockets. Creation groans, 19, for the long, it's longing for the revealing of the sons of God. There in verse 19, why? Because your redemption assures creation of its renewal. That's really a remarkable thing to consider. Yours and my redemption assures creation of its renewal. I don't mean this, what I'm about to say, egocentrically of us. There's a lot about the evangelical expression of Christianity that needs reforming and renewing. But the best thing the world has going for it is the redeemed people of God. That God is doing a redeeming work every day, all through the day. We get a lot wrong, the redeemed. We do. This is a, a time for the, I think, for evangelicals to be humble. But God working in and through us, God blessing us and turning us outwardly to bless others, this all works in favor of creation. And so when you give yourself to uh, whatever restores a, a broken world, which is one reason why we do local ministries. Lamar and Andrew and Donna were talking here uh, about uh, our involvements. And, and one of the reasons that we give ourselves to renewing works is because we know the world was made to be filled with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. Speaking of, I'll end with this, it's 12 o'clock. Did you happen to see this week the viral video from off the coast of New Zealand where this seal jumps out of the sea and slaps a kayaker with an octopus? Did you see that? This is no lie, it actually happened. That will become an internet meme now. People are getting their phones out, I gotta see this. That will become an internet meme now for something completely absurd. They're out there, all these Kiwis, they're in their kayaks and they're having a good time. And there's this beautiful scenery behind them and this seal comes whipping up out of the water with an octopus and just, bam, this guy right in the face. And you hear the, you know, the, you hear the New Zealanders go, oh, well, man, that was mental. You know, they're just, they're just having a great time. A day will come, this is the promise of God, when all such absurdities in creation... All futilities with which we are now all too familiar, they will all be over. And not just over as if, oh, we're glad that's done. But over in that sense where it's swallowed up in the renewing glory of God filling it all. Where, where it will not occur to seals anymore to slap kayakers with octopi. It will be perfect kayaking then. I made passing reference earlier to Isaiah and I want to finish with Isaiah few centuries behind Paul here. Isaiah also got a few of the future, and, and Isaiah saw King Jesus ruling over a new heaven and a new earth, and Isaiah said, here's what I saw. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. 
They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as waters cover the sea. What is that? That is renewed creation. Heaven as we know it, as we'll know it, looks a lot like a renewed creation, it would seem. Nor will seals slap kayakers with an octopus. Seals apparently can be curmudgeonly. The seal version of get off my lawn. Get out of my water. There's still great beauty and purpose in creation order. I was telling somebody this week, you know, I've, I've kind of learned in my depressive condition that I've got to get out west every year. I've got to get in the Rocky Mountains. I've got, got to see mountains every year. I'm like a hobbit. I'm like a little Bilbo Baggins. The mountains, Gandalf. I want to see the mountains again. Because there's something about me getting to the top of a mountain that just cleanses my, my soul. It's the beauty of creation. Y'all are in trouble if a church from Colorado comes calling. You better, you better hide the churches from Colorado. Beautiful still, but broken and groaning. And it has been ever since human society was no more than two brothers out on a field beyond the view of the only kin they had in the world. And the ground that was already placed under a curse by God, Genesis 3, then had to absorb the blood of Abel, Genesis 4. And thus it began, creation, groaning. It would be just of God to let it go on in its futility and us with it, but he redeems. He renews because God is just and justified. And so we consider the present sufferings, not dismissive to say, but the present sufferings, they are hard and they are difficult and we don't want them. But there comes a glory at some point that outshines the reality that we experience now behind this curtain. Let's stand together and pray. And then, Ken, let's do a line of our song at the end. Whichever one you pick, you tell us which one it'll be. And we'll sing that together because we do need to leave with, with singing. It is well as a great song to sing after a message like this. Maybe let's sing two lines. We got time for two lines. Let's sing two lines. All right. It's 12.04. You got to get a kid out of the nursery. We understand. Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for uh, a hope and a, of a glory that I just, I just can't wait to see. And I say that, Lord, with no escapism, no desire to check out here. I want to be fully engaged. In fact, the more I anticipate that, the more engaged I want to be. Lord, a lot of us are world-weary. We're tired. We're, we're sick of it. Whatever it is that we came from this week, that we watched, we heard, we participated in, or we had participated in against us, we get tired. We look to you because that's what we're called to do. And we're called to do it to recognize that you're always having us in view. You're always keeping us. You're always reminding us of your patience and your goodness. And so we thank you that we can say it's well with our soul, even if our world is crumbling around us. We can say that because of the hope that you have given to us. And if we can't say that, Lord, that, that you would do a work in us that we can. Help us in our weakness, in our frailty, in our, in our futility. Give us the groaning. Give us the longing, the eager anticipation of what is to come. For it will be really, really, really great. And we are thankful for this in Christ's name. Amen.